Well, good morning. Get my timer set here. I was told I had two hours, so I want to make sure I stay within that. Well, it is good to be here this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Tony Mazurka. I am the executive director at Camp Jesus is Mine in Pillager. And uh, I got some good news. Some of you heard this already, but we've been looking for a maintenance director for over a year. So I've been doing a couple different jobs, and that was one of the jobs I was kind of throwing under my umbrella as a result of the pandemic restrictions. And uh, our new maintenance director actually started the beginning of last week. Invest. So you can be praying for him as I invest in his life, hopefully not causing him to stumble. I'd um, also like to encourage you, if you are looking for a good Christian camp this summer, we have an incredible theme called Evidence. We're going to be talking to people about what it means to be a follower of Christ and what are the evidences of one growing in relationship to God. And so if you're looking for information on that, please feel free to pull me aside, talk to Pastor Charlie. There are brochures in the back on the kiosk. Uh, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Also, we are still looking for people to help in areas of maintenance. We're still looking for a couple guy counselors, and um, we're always looking for people that want to serve in behind the scenes like kitchen and crafts and those kind of areas. So feel free to reach out if that might be an area of your gifting. I got to tell you something. So I about two weeks ago found out from Charlie, said, hey, would you mind filling in? And I said, yeah, I can do that. And uh, I had it all set. I knew what I was going to speak on. I was going to talk about the alphabet soup stuff, because that's what I've been studying, the LGTP, elemental Q, all that stuff. I thought, you know, a biblical response, a loving response without compromise in relation to how uh, believers to interact and deal with that. And I was all excited until one day I sat down, I said, you know what? When you talk about controversial, guess who gets all the phone calls? It wouldn't be me. They're all going to call Charlie. So would that be right for me to set him up that way and then say, hey, I'm going to be preaching at a few other churches this spring. Good luck. So I thought, you know what? Charlie likes to do the exegetical verse-by-verse teachings, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to continue that. And he said, well, why don't you do Peter? And I thought, you know, it's been a while since I've been in the book of Peter. I probably shouldn't dive into that. Plus, you know, I don't know. Then you might start comparing us and everything, and who knows what might happen there. So I thought, Hebrews... I'll do, a, I'll do a walkthrough just like he does on Hebrews 12. That is just a fascinating book in the Bible. And I thought, this will be great. And I started going through Hebrews 12. I thought, I can do this all in one shot, right? I got to verse 2 and discovered I had 40 minutes of content. Now, he did say I had up to two hours. Well, 40 minutes of content in two verses, I figured we probably should be content with verse 1 and 2. And so that's what we're going to talk about is Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Hebrews was written a, just probably prior to the fall of Jerusalem, around AD 70. Um, it was written to Christians who had been Jews, so it was Jewish converts to Christianity, And so there's a lot of Old Testament references we'll find in that, which would have made perfect sense to the Jewish culture of the time. They would have understood that. It's interesting, though, that it's one of the few books of the Bible that they're not exactly sure who wrote. You know, for many years, it was thought that Paul 
Paul was the author of Hebrews. You look at the way it talks about running the race and, and the, the traditions of the Greek uh, Olympics and that kind of thing, and everybody said, it was Paul. It's got to be Paul. Well, in the past few hundred centuries, there's been a lot of discussion whether maybe it wasn't Paul. Maybe it was Apollos. Maybe it was Priscilla. Maybe it was Luke. So we don't know for sure who wrote the book, but that does not affect its canonicity or its validity or the fact that it is part of our Holy Scriptures. So I'm going to read Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. And it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you look up the Greek word for cloud, it's a figure of speech that indicates a large group. This isn't a small group of witnesses. This is a large group of witnesses. The author sets a scene where we can envision a large group of those Old Testament champions of faith as spectators from heaven, encouraging us to press on and overcome the present circumstances. I think of the people in Ukraine. Right now in their situation... If you're a believer there, that you need to be pressing on. The author here wants us to think about it from the perspective. Think of the people in the Old Testament that went through this before, all those champions of faith and how they pressed on in faith. Think of them as running this race alongside of you. We can envision these great saints as our supporters in heaven, encouraging us by saying, in faith, we can do it, we could do it, then in faith, you can too. Don't give up. Things may get tough, but see that God is faithful. In Hebrews 11, the author actually, the author actually lists these many different champions of faith, and you know these people, Abel, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, just to mention a few. They all persevered in faith, not in the government, not in family and friends, but in the faith of God's promises. We see in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 22, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Imagine that. God promised that through Isaac... There's going to be this great nation. And then he says, oh, I want you now to offer him as a sacrifice. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham's faith wasn't in the present circumstances. If we looked at the present circumstances, once somebody's dead, that's it. How is that promise going to be fulfilled? But Abraham's faith was so deep that he, said, he realized that, you know what? If I offer my son, God has already figured this out. He already has a plan. He will be faithful to fill that plan. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, 
made mention of the exodus of the Israels and gave directions concerning his bones. They were promised to be this great nation, but yet here they are living in Egypt. Jacob realized, I mean, Joseph realized that that wasn't the end. I want my bones to be in that great nation. He had no way of knowing what was going to happen. All these Old Testament examples trusted in God in faith to do what he promised. Many didn't even see the promises carried out, but gave all that and all God asked in faith. When I first came to Camp Jim, we had a, a donor that showed up. His name was Loyal. And I'd heard rumors about Loyal and that he had a lot of money and he wanted to build this building. And uh, I was a new guy. I was 31 years old, really didn't know what I was doing. I'd been in Christian camping about five, so good at those, and uh, was still trying to figure things out. Camp Jim was not doing so good at those days. And this guy shows up and I thought, wow, this is that Loyal guy. What in the world am I going to do? And so we got to know each other a little bit, and the end result was that he said, I want you to build this building, and I'm going to pay for it. I said, all right, I have faith that you are really going to do this. And so we moved forward. No cash in hand, nothing more than a verbal, if I build this, you'll pay for it kind of an agreement. As the progress continued on, and the building started going up, Loyal died. But in his will and testament, in his estate, he had faith enough in what we were doing that we would complete what we said we'd do, that he fully funded that project. Not only did he fund that project, he paid for my family and I to be able to buy a property. Camp was able to buy the property, and I moved off-site, allowing us to hire more staff. He provided funding for Camp to build a maintenance director's house. We can do the same thing today. The problem is sometimes we put our faith in the wrong people. Too many people put their faith in a politician to fulfill their promises. We misplace our faith with that quite often. Or we trust in a school system to train our kids or in organizations to meet our needs. There are times when these people actually do follow through. We did build that building. He did provide the money for that building. But there are times people don't follow through because we're a fallible people and we often fail. But God is the only one that we know knows the past, the present, and the future and has the ability to make anything happen. So we're going to put our trust in man or put a trust in an eternal God? I have a kind of a funny example for this. I tell my wife that I have a massive guardian angel. I think this guy's huge. Uh, you might think I'm kidding. By the time I was 24, I had been through about seven tornadoes, three hurricanes. I lost count of the tropical storms. I've been shot at, been through a war. I've been on machines not designed to fly and have flown. But yet I'm here. Because he's that I trust that guardian angel to protect me no matter what. Because he's got to be massive, right? I put my faith in that angel, right? I could do that. 
But that would be foolish because really that angel works for somebody greater. That angel works for God. It's God that kept me through those situations, not that angel. I don't pray to that angel. No idea. Maybe he's not even there. I don't know. But I believe God knows. And for some reason, and I've never figured this out, he's kept me alive all these years. Little scrawny farm kid from northern Minnesota. God didn't promise to keep me safe. But he did promise to make a way for me to spend eternity with him if I put my faith in him. So let's go back to Hebrews 12, 1 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Some translators say ensnares us. When it says clings so closely, it says ensnares us. I like that translation better. The second encouragement is that if we free ourselves from sin and distractions, we can run this race of life with endurance. It's sin that can hold us back, but not just sin. There's other things in this life that can hold us back. Our choices sometimes aren't black and white. Sometimes we can decide we want to live in a really, really super fancy house, and we have the most beautiful house in the world. But that can turn into a hindrance. Maybe we want the Cadillac versus the Chevrolet. Nothing wrong with a Cadillac, but sometimes that can be a hindrance. Maybe we can choose that we're only going to go to church on the days with good weather because, you know, we wouldn't want to get stuck or lost or something like that. That can be a hindrance. For me, I don't watch sports. It's kind of been weird because most of my friends, they all watch sports. Matter of fact, when I was in college, you know, they always had those pools where everybody would say, whoever gets the most correct games for the football season, you know, you're going to get whatever. And in our case, it was a pizza party. And so I'm like, yeah, I didn't want to be left out. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. I never watched one game. I walked in one time to my roommate, Brian, over the, across the hallway from the, co- and the apartments there at college. And I said, so how is it going? And he said, oh, yeah, so-and-so's doing it. All I knew about any of the games that entire season was what I learned talking to Brian or my other friend Paul. I maybe saw five minutes worth of the games, but yet I won that year. (laughs) I'm not saying watching sports is bad, but for me, the time I don't put into doing that frees me up to spend more time with my family. It frees me up to spend more time doing the ministry God's called me to do at camp. So, again, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch sports. Don't get that out of this. Go home and tell your wife or tell your husband, hey, the guy at church said don't watch sports. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying for me, that's been a thing that's kind of removed a distraction from my life. You shouldn't watch. I'm just waiting. I'm going to get phone calls. Tony says you shouldn't watch sports. No, he didn't say that. The choices are different for each one of us. We need to make wise choices. Figure out what are the priorities in your life and what are the hindrances in your life. What things will draw you closer to God? What things will put you, pull you further away from God? The sin which so easily ensnares us. The word easily ensnares comes from the Greek word, and I've been asking my wife how to pronounce this. 
um, Uperstation. I could spell it for you. You can tell me if it's close. But anyways, there's four translations for the word easily ensnares. First one is easily avoided. Next one's admired. Third one's ensnaring. And the fourth one's dangerous. We're to lay aside these things. So the first one, we're to lay aside sins that can be easily avoided but are not. Those little sins, those little white lies. Maybe it's the glancing at the pretty girl on the beach. Those little sins that are easily to avoid but we don't. The next ones, the sins that are admired, but yet must be laid aside. Maybe it's having the fanciest clothes. Maybe it's being the toughest guy in school. It's putting things over what God wants. Sins that are ensnaring and thus very harmful. We all know drugs, alcohol, things like that. They're very harmful in our lives and their sins. Sins that are more dangerous than other things. Hatred, pride, unforgiveness, all those things will lead you down a very, very bad road. Let us run with endurance. What is needed is endurance to finish what we've begun in Jesus Christ, the race that is set before us. Race is an ancient Greek word, agona, a word that is used for conflict or struggle of many kinds. We have a conflict and struggle set in front of us. People in Ukraine have a major conflict and struggle set before them. For those of you who've been in the military, you know what it's like to be in a conflict or a struggle. It's not easy. I started participating in racing when I was 11 years old. Now, remember, I grew up in a small rural town, so there wasn't a lot to do. So they had this thing called the, the Mora Classic. And it was a series of races that if you could complete each race in a year, year you could earn a medal. The first year was bronze, the second year was bronze. If you did it a third year, it would move to like a silver. If you could do it, I believe it was seven years, you would earn a gold medal. So for 15 years, I competed in running, skiing, biking, and canoeing. What I learned during that time is that when you're racing, you need to get rid of all the extra stuff. If I'm going to go do a running race, I'm not going to carry a backpack and camping gear. I'm not going to bring an extra change of clothes. That's just going to slow me down. In biking, I want to strip that bike down to the bare essentials. Matter of fact, we would get the thinnest, lightest tires we could find, the lightest rims we could find, the lightest frames we could find. In canoeing, we actually would take everything extra off of that canoe. Well, except for one year, my buddy and I thought we'd have fun of it, so we actually put all kinds of junk on it and almost won the race. But that's a bad example. But we'd strip that canoe down, and a matter of fact, we would put plastic over the center of that canoe and tape that down, and we'd wax the bottom of it because we didn't want any resistance. We wanted our energy and our strength to go into powering that canoe forward and not having any drag. Sin, like extra gear, will slow us down. It makes running the race in life that much more difficult. In addition, it interferes with our relationship with God. If we have sin in our life, 
it puts a boundary, a separation between us and God. He's there waiting for us to repent. He doesn't leave us. It's not like, oh, I sinned, now God's gone. Oh, no, now the end of the world. No, he's right there, but it interferes with that relationship. Spurgeon says it this way, he stands with us at the standing, starting point and earnestly, earnestly says to us, not run, but let us run, as if even the author himself and God is at our side as a runner. That are, we're not going through this race by ourselves. We've got those saints of old that are cheering us on. We have God running beside us. It's not like God says, well, you got a race to run. Hopefully you make it. Good luck, buddy. No. He gives us examples of those that have gone before, and he promises to be with us. The Barclay commentary says it this way. It says, endurance translates from the ancient Greek word hopomone, which does not mean the patience, patience which sits down and accepts things, but the patience which masters them. It is the determination, unhurrying, and yet undelaying, which goes steadily on and refuses to be deflected. Run the race well, run the race well, dump those things which hinder the racer, stay away from sin, and look to the examples God gave us and run. Final encouragement I want to share this morning comes from verse 2. We're to look to the ultimate example in Jesus Christ. And verse 2 says it this way. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus. The New American Standard Version translates it. The, I like the way they put it a little bit better. It says this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I know, if, I'm a hymns guy. I know, I'm, I'm only a young guy, but I actually really like the hymns better. It's taken me a while to adjust to contemporary music, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but I don't sing that high for one, so it's a little more difficult, but the hymns, I could sing that. There is a hymn by Helen Horth Lemmel in 1863 to 1961. That's when she lived, and she wrote the song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, upon Jesus. And the refrain says this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we have our eyes focused on the things God wants, when we focus on Christ, and he becomes our, our inspiration, our example, it's like everything around us fades away. In Greek, looking on a Jesus uses the verb that implies a definite looking away from other things and a present looking to Jesus. I don't know, anybody here ever driven a warship? All right, I'm kind of in a minority. I got one. Hey, praise the Lord. I used to drive a fast frigate, and this is, this is right after the Gulf War was kind of wrapping up. And um, if you know anything about a fast frigate, it's about 400 feet long, probably 40-some feet wide. It was a, a, 
a sub-hunter ship from the Cold War. Our job was to find Russian subs and sink them. And so we were a fairly agile ship, but the way we were designed, it didn't really handle real well. We had a huge bowl under the front of our bow. So anytime we went crashing down in the water, the ship couldn't dive straight. It went side to side. So you're getting shook and shaked, and the ship would do rolls. Um, We had torpedoes break loose, quite common for it to leak. It was an older ship. And I'd get to drive that sometimes, and that was a rush. 10,000 horse. Oh, yeah. But when you're driving a frigate in a, in a tropical storm, it's not as simple as one might think. We have this little compass thing, which is like a brass box with a mirror in it. And I don't think that opening is maybe about that big. And inside that is what they call a gyro repeater compass. So there's a bigger compass, a gyro compass, in the base of that ship, which then repeats what it's seeing to the compass that we navigate on. You've got a conning officer that says, I need you to go to such and such a coordinates, and that's what we do. We focus on that coordinates. Now, in a tropical storm, that ship is doing 30-degree rolls. I can walk on walls. You hang above your head on a bar because you can't stand like that, and you have a huge wheel like the old TV shows that steers the ship. But your only focus when you're driving a ship, because sometimes we're above the water, sometimes we're looking at the sky, sometimes we're looking underwater. Everything's moving, and everything's just waves, water, and black. So you can't go, okay, I want you to drive to the tree there and take a right. That doesn't work. If you start looking out the windows, you're either going to get scared or you're going to get distracted or something happens. And if you turn that ship too far, it can roll over and sink. So you have to be focused on that compass. The only other thing you pay any attention to is the conning officer giving you directions. If that conning officer says, go right to heading 120, we say, going right to heading 120, we spin that wheel. There's a little thing that tells us where the, where the rudder's actually at, and when that compass gets close to that, you spin the wheel the other way and hope to God you don't flip the thing over. But that's it. Your focus is on the direction you're heading. Your ears are open to the orders from the conning officer, and that's what you do. It doesn't matter if being shot at. It doesn't matter if the storm's trying to sink the ship. It doesn't matter if the guy next to you is hurling. You focus on keeping on course. Spurgeon put it this way, the Greek word for looking is a much fuller word than we can find in the English language. It has a preposition in it which turns the look away from everything else. You are to look from all beside to Jesus. Fix not thy gaze upon the cloud of witnesses. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. Pay attention to the witnesses. No, they're an encouragement, but that's not our goal. They will hinder thee if they take away thine eyes from Jesus. Look not on the weights and on the besetting sin. These thou hast laid aside. You need to get rid of those sins, get rid of those distractions. Look away from them. Do not even look upon the race course or the competitors, but look to Jesus and so start the race. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is not only the founder of our faith, but he is the perfecter and the finisher of it also.
He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1.6. That would have been comforting words to those New Testament saints as well as us today. God is faithful. If he's begun a work in you, he will complete that work. We can know that for a fact. One may say that Jesus is with us at the starting line and the finish line and all the way through the race. Next part of the verse, Hebrews 12, 2. Who for the joy that is set before him. Jesus knew what had to be done. He knew the goal. He knew he had to endure, endure even to the cross. He endured the cross knowing the good of a redeemed, rescued people honoring God for all eternity. Jesus knew the good that would flow from this most agonizing experience. Jesus was able to do it and endure it with triumph. He had an ordeal, a lot of things on the cross, but yet Jesus kept his tongue. He didn't lash out. He kept his course. He didn't back out. He kept his focus. Just like we are, keep our focus on him. He kept his focus on God. And he kept his love for us. No sane man. This is God. I don't think one of us could do that. I couldn't do that. Next part of that verse, despising the shame. One of the most prominent elements of the cross was the shame. Jesus did not welcome the shame. He despised the shame, but he endured it to victory. He bore the shameful false accusations of blasphemy. He bore the shameful mocking. He bore a shameful blow. He, bore, he wore a shameful crown. He wore a shameful robe. He bore the shame of dying on public display on the cross of Calvary for something he didn't do. But he had his focus on God and God's plan, and he knew what was going to come from this. Many struggle with this part of the Christian walk. We can handle a lot of things, but shame and embarrassment? That's crossing the line. Spurgeon wrote to Christians who could not bear the shame that comes from the world for following Jesus, and he said this, and he says it rather harshly, but sometimes I hear someone to say something harshly to me because I know a lot of times I fit what he's talking about here. Yet you are a coward, Yes, put it down in English. You are a coward. If anyone called you so, you would turn red in the face. And perhaps you are not a coward in reference to any other subject. What a shameful thing it is that while you are bold about everything else, you are cowardly about Jesus Christ. Brave for the world and cowardly towards Christ. We need to despise the shame, the embarrassment. That's not good. God's not saying that's good. But shame for our faith in Christ, we should receive as a badge of honor, knowing that when we're in heaven, it'll be all worth it. The end of verse 2 says this, And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This speaks of Jesus' glorification. We have the same promise of being glorified though in a different sense, after our time on earth is finished. 
So in closing, I'm just going to recap a little here. Again, remember, I was going to go through the whole book of Hebrews. But as you get into studying God's Word, you find out there's so much in there. And I bet if I had to do this again, I'd find more. That's just how God works. It's amazing how we can do that. But the three points I took away from this and hopefully touch you guys today is first, take encouragement from those saints who have endured by faith before us and now have the reward. They did it. If they can do it, we can do it. We have the same God. If God did it back then, He can do it now. So we can look to them for encouragement, for inspiration. Consider them your personal cheering squad there in the corner. Number two, get rid of sin and the junk, the things that hinder us from running a race with endurance. Don't let the things of this world tie you up. Don't let the sins and the mistakes you've made continue to interfere with your relationship with God. Everybody here, I know, desires to know God. Don't let those sins interfere. Deal with them. Number three, looking towards the finish. Keep your eyes on the prize. If you've ever run races, you know that you need to be focused on that finish line. When you're 20 miles into a ski race and you're tired and you just want to rest, all you focus on then is that finish line. You know I'm 18 miles into this, I'm 20 miles into this, I need to make it to mile number number mile marker number 23, and I win. I finish. Keep your focus. Ignore the things to the right and to the left. Keep your focus on Christ. He's the prize. And like winning any race, we will receive our reward when we finish that race. But we need to finish the race. Well, Hopefully, you'll go home and read it yourself. Maybe you want to see what's in the rest of Hebrews 12. There's actually quite a bit packed into that book. I thank you for the opportunity to share this morning. I want to encourage you, as you go out, remember, we're not running this race for ourselves. We're running this race for God. And if you're thinking, I just can't make it, there's other people around that can help encourage you. And as the worship team's coming up, I'm going to close us in a word of prayer. Father God, we are so thankful that you're real. We're not just praying to some empty space. We're not praying to some angel that takes orders from you. We're not just praying because it's something we do. We're praying because we talk to you and you hear what we say and you love us. You loved us to the point you gave your life on the cross for us, making a way for us to be with you for all eternity, making a way for those sins we've committed to be removed from our lives and for us to come into a closer relationship with you. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be encouraged knowing that people have gone before us and they've made it through your power and in faith in you. We pray that you'd help us to deal with those things that might ensnare us that you'd help us to get those things out of our life. Father, we pray that you'd help us to keep our focus on you. 
that we look towards that prize of spending eternity in heaven. And we just pray that you bless the rest of this day, Lord, this day in your holy name. Amen. All right, after the music here, there are snacks in the back. You're welcome to stick around and visit and uh, enjoy today.